You're very welcome to episode four of The Week That Really Was with David Quinn and me, John McGurk. This week, we are going to talk about the US midterm elections, the best week that Joe Biden has had in some time. We're going to talk a little bit about COP27, the COP that will finally, after the 26th before it, save the world. We're going to talk a little bit too about Elon Musk, the takeover of Twitter, the exodus of some people to a new platform called Mastodon, and we might think of some other things to talk about as well. David, you're very welcome. I'm delighted to have you with me as always. Um, Joe Biden, pretty good week. Yeah, better than he expected and better than almost all commentators expected. And people are obviously trying to analyze exactly what happened. I mean, the first thing, I was speaking to a fellow the other day, he's an American, and he knows American politics with incredible granular detail. And he was saying, you've always got to bear in mind, America is a 50-50 nation. Um, It's very hard to get big swings nowadays. Um, I was listening to somebody else kind of analyzing this, and he was saying the sort of um, 50-60 seat House of Representatives swings can't really happen to the same extent anymore with a so closely divided nation. And also both parties have essentially gerrymandered a lot of seats. So it's very hard for them to lose them. So it does put, it puts fewer seats in play. Nonetheless, the Republicans did do uh, worse than expected. Um, it looks like they're going to get um, a majority in the House of Representatives. Um, the Senate, which everybody said, by the way, was going to be a toss-up, is a toss-up. It's going to remain incredibly close. Um, so why haven't they done as well as expected? Um, although losing the House from a Democratic point of view isn't exactly brilliant. Um, so they're pointing at two things. One is Trump um, and his kind of drag anchor effect, maybe, uh, upon you know the Republican candidates that he has sponsored. And the other one is abortion, um, which seems to have played a big part. Um, an exit poll afterwards was saying the big issue was the economy, but it wasn't followed too far behind by abortion. Well, I don't think, look, if, you, if you're the kind of person you're listening to this and you're, you're probably not looking, and I'm not saying you're doing this, David, but you're probably not looking for a media outlet that or a media thing that will finally tell the unvarnished truth about Donald Trump. You've got a lot of places that will do that. But I will say this. Exit poll, which proved pretty accurate, showed that his favorability was 37% favorable, 60% unfavorable. I don't care whether he wins the Republican nomination next time out. The simple fact is nobody wins a national election in the United States or anywhere else where it's a binary choice and 60% of the public don't like you. The Trump thing is over for Republicans, whether they realize it tomorrow or whether they realize it on the morning after Joe Biden wins a second term. Because if his opponent is Donald Trump, I think that will happen. Um, And I think you saw that in a couple of elections. And that's not Donald Trump when he was president did some things that he doesn't get credit for. Uh, if you're a conservative um, or if you're somebody who, who cares about free speech, um, he, he, he did an awful lot of work to protect um, free speech and roll back some of the, the weirder, wackier stuff on campus. If you're a liberal, he did great stuff on, on, um, on, on America's problem incarcerating people for absurd amounts of time. They kind of, have, they kind of have the opposite of Ireland's Martin Nolan problem. They have a situation where people end up in prison for 30, 40 years for possession of cocaine or cannabis. He did an awful lot of good work on that and many other things. But his good work counts for nothing if you can't win an election. And, and I think we saw this week that he's going to find it very difficult to win elections moving forward. Meanwhile, David, Ron DeSantis down in Florida, he sure did win an election. Yeah, I mean, four years ago, he won by a narrow margin in a swing state. Always in play between the Democrat uh, between the Democrats and Republicans, but this time he wins it by twenty points. 
And he won basically every single voter category. He was more popular among women. And he was also more popular among Latinos, uh, which is not what the Democrats would ever have expected, because they think the more Latinos end up in the United States as voters, the better the Democrats are going to do. And lo and behold, DeSantis gets a majority of them. I think in Texas, by the way, um, they didn't they didn't win a majority, but they did pretty well. And I think nationally, the figure for Hispanics was something like 40 percent for the Republicans, which, again, is not what would have been expected. And that's not a good trend for the Democrats. And so why did DeSantis do so well? Um, One of the reasons appears to be um, he freed people quicker from the COVID restrictions than a lot of the other states. And they seem to go down incredibly well with uh, most Florida voters, including the swing ones. I'm not sure it was just that that he did that. I was watching his speech the other night, his victory speech, and, and I, I think anyone who hasn't watched it who's mildly interested in American politics should go and look at it because, number one, it was very clearly a stump speech for 2024 as well as a, a, a victory speech for 2022. But something at the beginning of his speech uh, struck me, which was that he appeared to get genuinely quite choked up not talking about his family, not talking about his campaign, not doing the usual things politicians do, but talking about the COVID thing, where he said, look, we made a really hard decision to keep our state open. We stood with freedom. And it, what struck me about watching him as a politician, and, not, and you know, I'm, I'm too old at this stage to be a fanboy for any politician, but I was really struck by the genuine emotion and conviction. He really does believe this stuff. And I think people responded to that as much as they responded to what he did. He really believed in COVID. And I think a lot of our listeners would share his convictions that he was fighting the good fight for something really, really important, which was uh, human rights and liberty and free speech and not taking away people's freedoms unnecessarily. And that's a test that almost, not, not, not completely, but almost every other politician in the Western world comprehensively failed. That's not to say that they were necessarily wrong in what they did all the time. It is to say, though, that almost every politician in the Western world treated the very idea that liberties and freedoms were important and shouldn't be lightly taken away as an absolutely cavalier, unimportant thing. Um, And DeSantis was very different on that. And I agree with you. I think voters rewarded him for that. And they saw in him a leader who who says what he believes and does what he believes. And I think there's value in that, even when you disagree with somebody. Well, I mean, if we go back a bit into the earlier stages of the pandemic, so uh, Florida went went into lockdown with pretty much everybody else. Um, uh, Then he begins to come out of lockdown. Um, Schools, in fact, in Florida opened in August 2020, which was a bit later than in some European countries. And I was reading, um, I think it might have been an article you tweeted actually today, uh, today or yesterday, where you were saying, it's like this particular article was saying, actually, by European standards, um, he wasn't so out there. Uh, he was pretty out there compared to, say, California or New York in terms of loosening the restrictions early. And he got absolutely and completely slammed at the time that this is the most grossly irresponsible act and was going to completely backfire on the people of the state and was going to be a complete disaster. And of course, he was going to lose power because of it. And in fact, if you look at the death toll in Florida of or with COVID, and of course, there's a crucial difference between those two things, uh, adjusting it for population, Sorry, adjusting it for the age of the population, because of course there's loads of retirees in Florida, and as they think one of the probably the oldest population in the entire country. But if you adjust it for age, 
Uh, there's California with extended lockdowns, kept schools closed for an absolutely unconscionable length of time. And the debt toll is not really that different, you know, when adjusted. Same for New York. New York, another deep blue state. Um, and it did not do brilliantly either, despite its extended lockdowns and extended restrictions. So, you know, these, like, it, whenever comparing one COVID region with another, you've got to compare like with like. So you've got to compare big crowd of states with big crowd of states, and you've got to look at their demographics as well, among other things. One of the things that really drove me mad during COVID was we kept on comparing ourselves to Britain and America. Absolutely ridiculous. Here we are, especially sparsely populated country with a relatively young population on the edge of Europe. And who are we comparing ourselves to? Our next door neighbour, Britain, which is 66 million people. The southern part of England is very densely populated compared with Ireland. They have an older population. They have a more ethnically mixed population, and that counts because certain ethnic groups, for example, Asians um, and black people, for some reason, had higher debt tolls. And we think it's relevant to compare ourselves with Britain absolutely absurd you've got to compare ourselves with other sparsely populated countries on the edge of europe like norway it's a very good point it's a, it, uh, it, it and do you know but sure this is the irish thing we compare ourselves to britain uh, on on every level um so i mean yeah i i i i i think you're right there and i think this whole thing is absolutely key to DeSantis's appeal both uh, within his own political party uh, and with the the wider with the wider Republican electorate, but the the Republicans, um, let's face it, outside of Florida, I mean, it's it's the usual thing. It actually reminded me of the last three elections, where in 2018, 2020, and and now 2022, um, because in Ireland, you know, people might stay up to one o'clock in the morning or so and get a picture, and Florida always comes in quite early. You get this idea that. Florida, which was traditionally a swing state, is a bellwether for the nation. And Florida was anything but a bellwether for the nation uh, in the US the other night, because in almost every other big, high-profile marquee election, uh, the ones everyone was looking for before, the Pennsylvania Senate race, the uh, the election in Arizona, where, where Carrie Lake is running for governor and was expected to win, the Republicans underperformed and underperformed badly. And um, you, you were saying before we came on air, I saw you tweeting earlier on that you thought abortion had a, a big role to play in that. Yeah, so I was saying that um, an exit poll on the night of the election, uh, so the voters obviously put inflation in the economy at number one, but abortion wasn't that far behind. Um, and then I saw this absolutely stunning figure in the New York Times after the election. And it said that the Democrats spent almost half a billion dollars on ads that mentioned abortion. You gotta let that figure sink in. I doubt of any people. In fact, it's impossible to, to, to think that any other country would come close to this. Um, um, more people were subjected to more abortion ads in a shorter time than anywhere else in the whole history of the world. Imagine being on Facebook and watching your um, TV programs and all the rest of it, and you're just being constantly bombarded with ads telling you that. If a woman has an ectopic pregnancy, she won't be able to have an abortion, which was total and utter nonsense. Um, telling them that um, here are all these hard cases, the usual ones that we heard in the debate here as well, things like genuine hard cases like rape and incest won't be able to have an abortion. Um, even CNN had to admit that some of the ads were telling outright lies about certain Republican candidates that um, they wanted to pass a federal law banning abortion across all 50 states. And even CNN admitted in the case of four candidates, this was not true. Um, but nonetheless, these ads are running 
and half a billion dollar worth of advertising. So I didn't know they were spending anything like that. I mean, it's, it's just an unthinkable sum of money. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more than they spent in any other subject. And it, like, if you're spending that amount of money in just a few weeks or months, it's almost impossible for it not to have an impact. Well, uh, and sorry, and, and then if you ask voters, well, what's one of the big issues? Well, it's the one they saw on all the ads. But um, I think Irish people sometimes don't get, and I'm not saying you're guilty of this, but I think Irish people in general don't get a real sense of the sheer absurd scale of American political advertising. I'm thinking back here to the 2020 election in the state of Maine, which is up in the, if you don't know where Maine is, it's up on the very northeastern tip of the US. It's the basically the first, first bit of America that you would see if you were coming down from Canada along the East Coast. And that that state has a population of 1.372 million. So it's where Stephen King sets all his novels. It is, yeah. Uh, it's where it's it's where um, where Jessica Fletcher lived in uh, in Murder She Wrote as well. But it's a very small state, 1.372 million. There was a Senate election there in 2020, uh, which the Republicans won, where the Democrats spent 100 million dollars in advertising on a population of 1.372 million people. So you can work out the maths, but it's some absurd uh, sum of money per person spent on television advertising. The money is is insane. But I think you're, you're, you're right about the intensity of the Democratic abortion advertising campaign. But I think as well, Republicans have a problem on abortion. And this might be unpopular now with 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 some listeners if you're a pro-lifer. So I want to state very clearly, my, my view on this is I'm, I'm pro-life in, in, and that's it. But I always look at um, abortion politics as being structurally um, difficult for pro-life people because on the one side you have Democrats and, and liberals who are, who are in favor of legal abortion, but they're always content to move the ball down the field three yards at a time. So Democrats have this position, abortion, we want abortion in all circumstances, but we will take a win if it goes from abortion at 15 weeks to abortion at 18 weeks. Whereas pro-lifers, for very good uh, reasons, because they're opposed to abortion in all cases, there's a difficulty for Republican politicians if they do what, say, DeSantis did in Florida, which has said, okay, we're moving to a ban at 15 weeks, because then some people in the base of the, that party will say, oh, well, you're actually in favor of abortion in some circumstances. Well, where, where, you know, the pro-lifers tend to be not as willing to move the ball down the pitch in increments. Well, and that, that makes Paul, life difficult. Yeah, so John Paul II, um, said in an, in an encyclical called Evangelium Vitae, uh, which came out in the 1990s, um, that in a country where you had a very liberal abortion law, it was acceptable for pro-lifers to support a law that was less liberal, even if it didn't go as far as you like. Um, so what you're talking about there is a very good example. So if the present abortion law allows it up to 24 weeks and a new law is going to allow it up to 15 weeks, a pro-lifer can, in good conscience, vote for that law because it's a big improvement. And to say, no, we're not going to support that because we're not getting everything we wanted is politically unrealistic, um, might even be um, immoral under the circumstances because you're not voting for a better law. You're not voting to make things better because you're, it's a classic case of making the perfect the enemy of the good. And if they won't listen to John Paul II, um, uh, the biggest pro-life champion of all popes, because he made it a central motif of, of his pontificate, then who are they going to listen to? You're right. But I think the problem here is that the Americans have this primary election system, which in both parties encourages and brings the worst out. Not the worst. I don't want to say the people who are pro-life are the worst. They're not in any way. But it does mean that, for example, 
in states like Arizona, where, where there was a, an important Senate race and a guy called Blake Masters was running for the nomination, he came out initially in the primaries and said a ban in all circumstances, which uh, is not popular in Arizona. And then in the general election, he had to back off on that and say, oh, no, I'm not in favor of abortion in all circumstances, which, number one, had the deleterious effect of, of annoying a lot of middle-of-the-road voters in Arizona, and then number two, alienating some of his own primary voters when he was trying to appeal to the middle in the election. So this primary system tends to pull candidates to the fringes of their own party, which is a big reason why, of course, Donald Trump got elected in the first place, and is a big reason why Joe Biden, who used to be a fairly moderate middle-of-the-road Democrat, um, is now quite extreme, not only on abortion, but on a whole range of other issues, where he's he's much further to the left than he would have been himself 20 years ago. Um, there were a number... I, yes, I go on. No, no, that, that's basically the point I was making. There were a number of, I think it was seven state referendums on abortion, and the pro-life side lost all of them. They, either, they even lost one in Montana, which uh, pro-lifers had put on the ballot. And it said, uh, if a baby's born alive after an abortion, doctors must take all reasonable steps to save that baby. And uh, anyway, the Democratic ads made it out as though you've got to try and save the baby, even if the baby is definitely going to die. And that means you're going to have to deprive the baby of palliative care. So um, voters seem to be convinced of that. And this proposal to try and save the baby that's born alive after an abortion lost by something like 52 to 48 or thereabouts, went to about 95 percent of votes. And so even that lost because the Democrats were able to distort what that law was intending. Um, I think one passed in Michigan um, that basically allows abortion for any reason up to birth. Um, and I think Americans, when Roe versus Wade was repealed a few months ago with the Dobbs decision, I think they were convinced by the mainstream media this means abortion is going to be banned across America, which was total nonsense because, of course, what it was doing was it was, it was restoring it to the states to decide what kind of abortion law they want. Um, and the average is going to be abortion up to, I don't know, um, 15, 16 weeks probably. And then in states like deep blue states like New York is going to be allowed for any reason up to birth. Um, and what I noticed, by the way, is um, uh, Irish newspapers and media and liberal commentators who are pro-choice, have you ever seen any of them ever write an article saying something like, that New York law goes a bit too far. I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with abortion for bait for almost any reason up to birth. I have never seen such an article written by any liberal commentator in Ireland ever. There is no abortion law that in practice they are going to object to. It's the same, by the way, with euthanasia. We only want a bit. I never see them writing an article saying Belgium has now gone too far, Netherlands has gone too far, etc. Never, ever happens. Yeah, well, you're, you're, you're not wrong there. I mean, I'd look, let's face it, they'd, they'd face a revolt in their newsrooms, they'd get eaten on Twitter, they'd be you know, they, they wouldn't be able to show their face on Mastodon, but we'll come back to Mastodon in a little, <laughs> a little while. Um, I suppose we'll wrap up uh, talking about the, UL, the U.S. midterm elections by, um, I mean, Mike, are there any lessons, do you think, for the, any clues there for, for the next Irish general election? Mine would be that, I mean, what Joe Biden proved the other day is that even when you're very, very unpopular, uh, if the opposition aren't necessarily appealing it's still possible to pull out a win. I mean, 75% of Americans in the exit poll said the country was headed in the wrong direction. And I'm guessing you'd get a similar sort of percentage here in Ireland. But I mean, I, my take on it from an Irish perspective was that if I was watching those elections the other night, ironically enough, I'd be a bit nervous if I was in Sinn Féin head office. Because it did show that, number one, candidates matter. And I'm, I'm not sure at the last election, uh, Sinn Féin put the best slate of candidates on the field they possibly could. Um, and I'm also not entirely sure 
that the Irish government being unpopular is enough of a prerequisite for the voters to uh, to switch. I thought that was a, a very interesting lesson that I took from the midterms the other night. Um, yeah. Do you think I'm wrong about that? Or? No, don't run stupid and bad candidates. I think, by the way, and I may, uh, this may be just be an impression, that some of the Fine Gael messaging about Sinn Féin and its threat to the economy is starting to get through, and it's because of the mess that Quartang and Liz Truss made with their budget a few weeks ago. So the Irish people are now saying, if you pass a bad budget, um, the financial markets ain't going to like it one bit, and they're going to put big pressure on you, uh, and the bond markets will start increasing your um, uh, you know, differentials uh, in terms of the interest rate they charge you for bonds compared with other countries. And so, you know, Lever after has been banging that drum quite a lot. You let If you let Sinn Féin in and they pass some ridiculous um, uh, fiscally irresponsible budget, you see what's going to happen. We just saw in Britain what can happen. And so that message about Sinn, uh, Sinn Féin's fiscal irresponsibility might be getting through for the first time to some voters. Well, speaking of fiscal irresponsibility is a good uh, place to, uh, to to move on to our next topic because the um, the Taoiseach this week, he's he's on sort of a farewell tour, 17th of December. He will no longer be the Taoiseach. He may be the Taunashe, he may be something else. But he's the Taoiseach for the moment and he was in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, this week. Took a flight there, ironically enough, to uh, talk about climate change. And when he was there, he pledged... Um, Oh, was it two hundred and twenty-five million a year of, of your money and my money, David, and every every listener's mm-hmm. money to um to basically bribe countries in the third world to build more windmills or something like of, of that effect? Um, I mean, I, I just look cop, and I think every year I, I think it, it it gets more ridiculous. I mean, you you can you can agree, and I'm not going to argue with anybody who believes that climate change is an urgent problem. I I I, I think I said in last week's podcast I'm a bit of a fundamentalist when it comes to animal rights and conservation and so. That's all very good. But the spectacle, the spectacle of the world's elite arriving into a resort in Sharm el-Sheikh on their private jets, eating their gourmet meals at an event sponsored by Coca-Cola, the world's biggest plastic producer, lecturing the rest of us on what we may and may not do in order to save the world. I think it is sickening, and I think it gets more sickening by the year, and I think COP becomes more counterproductive by the year. Um, and uh, I mean, I was I was watching. I well, no, sorry, I wasn't watching because I never watched. But I heard about it the other night um, on Monday RTE's program on the subject, um, which, as usual, was unadulterated, one-sided propaganda. Yeah, um, the there's a touch of the Harry and Meghan about this. So Harry and Meghan uh, will fly into some conference on a private jet. Uh, we'll give a lecture about climate change and then fly out into private jet again, and yep. then maybe go, and then maybe go off to a party the following weekend on a private jet. Uh, like like it's the same thing with people like Leonardo DiCaprio. I think there was a some kind of uh, did he fly into a Davos summit or something to give a lecture about climate change, and then he flies out again um, on a private jet. I mean the whole thing is so absurd and it just sickens the public, and it's obviously greenwashing. Um, and the COP26, 27, and the whole, as you say, series of 27 of them uh, are mainly greenwashing exercises. Now, of course, by the way, in this respect, we're amazingly in agreement with Greta Thunberg, uh, who is not there this year, um, uh, possibly because she doesn't fly, fair play to her, and um, not so easy to get the charm or shake when you don't fly. Uh, I think she was at the one last year in Scotland, much easier one for her to get to, obviously, than going to Egypt. Uh, but she regards the whole thing as a farce. 
Um, because, oh, by the way, she doesn't think it goes far enough. Um, I mean, what annoys me is the dishonesty of most politicians when they speak about this issue and don't speak to voters in a straightforward manner about the massive trade-offs involved in this. So if you want to do what we do, uh, or what we're aiming to do, which is to have carbon emissions by 2030, you've got to spend enormous amounts of money. Um, uh, you're expecting households to spend enormous amounts of money. You're probably going to harm economic growth. Uh, you're going to harm farming. Um, all of this. Um, uh, by the way, you might also um, um, uh, harm the integrity and reliability of our electric grid because we're obviously trying to switch from fossil fuels, fine, to renewables, but it's like switching horses midstream. You could easily fall off and get it wrong because if you don't make the transition properly, we're going to get energy shortages, particularly when you've got a country that won't store gas anywhere because the Greens forbid it. And we don't um, even think about the possibility of having a small nuclear reactor because that was forbidden by law years ago. Um, so we're a country that simply you know, won't face up to these sort of things in a realistic adult way that appraises people of the trade-offs involved. Well, what gets me, I mean, what gets my goat now, there's a lot of things about this topic which get my goat, but what really gets my goat is the dishonesty of it uh, when it comes to emissions. So, for example, the classic example I always use for people, and this is 100% true, go check it out if you don't believe me, is that, so take the example of biomass power, where, you, where you're, you're bringing in biomass fuel uh, from Australia to, to fuel a biomass um, uh, furnace, basically, to generate power. We don't do much of it, but we do some of it. Um, that energy, that biomass stuff uh, comes from the other side of the planet, it comes from Australia. We actually import it from Australia. And because of the way the climate emissions calculations work, Ireland goes to Australia and buys uh, biomass wood and ships it to Ireland. But the emissions involved in harvesting that wood, burning that wood, and shipping it around the planet are counted as Australia's emissions, not Ireland. So even though we're creating the demand for 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 all these carbon emissions, we get to say we're being clean and clean and green, but the Australians are laggards, even though they're actually absorbing some emissions that are as a result of Irish policy, not Australian policy. And that's the kind of contradiction that is in this all of the time. And I've said before as well. The other thing that that simply doesn't make sense on uh, on Irish climate policy, and this is uh, touching the third rail, so to speak, mm. is that you cannot reconcile Irish climate policy with Irish immigration policy. No, w whether your view uh, views on immigration are are more of it, less of it, none of it, I don't care. The existing policy cannot be reconciled with the climate policy for two reasons. The first one is GDP emissions are calculated on per, per capita basis because people generate emissions. You generate emissions when you eat food, when you uh, take even the cleanest public transport generates some emissions, uh, going to the shop generates emissions, all of this stuff. When you bring people into the country, you automatically and by de, a de facto generate more emissions than you would otherwise. That's the first thing. Particularly if we're coming from a place with low per capita emissions. That was my point. If you take mm. somebody from um, Suriname, to pick a word, mm. uh, we don't take many people from Suriname, but if you do, um, where emissions are one hundredth of what they are in Ireland, that person automatically creates more emissions when they come into Ireland because their standard of living is higher. 
emissions are associated with a higher standard of living. So when we're saying we will reduce our emissions, we are not taking into account the increase of our population. So no matter what you're saying you're going to do today, you need to do more of it tomorrow when there are more people here. So it's it's like the reverse of a Ponzi scheme. And people can't get this, I think, well, obviously they can't get it into their heads because it's not allowed to be talked about. I mean, you cannot mm. talk about this on Irish radio. You certainly, I mean, or he actually ban any other perspectives on climate change other than the sort of how will we allocate this across the sectors conversation but but i mean it's we actually have set ourselves um, a task which we cannot complete um by definition cannot complete um and it's it's so dishonest in the first instance but in the second instance it's so destructive because we are we are voluntarily um making ourselves less competitive than the rest of the world to accomplish a reduction in emissions which will not make a difference uh, because Ireland is so small and such a smaller a small contributor, all on the basis that, and this is what gets me, that we will lead the world by example, that the Chinese will look at us sitting in our cold houses in 2040, not able to heat ourselves with regular blackouts because because it didn't blow, the wind didn't blow that day, and say, we should be more like the Irish. I mean, that's the delusion. It's a it's yeah. a delusion. And and it's it's one that can't be challenged. And I mean, when I say can't be challenged, I want to emphasize again, cannot be challenged. You cannot say this on RTE, they will cut your microphone. And that is well, that's a policy. That is not an exaggeration. That is their policy. Yeah. I mean, a few months ago, um, I was writing about this for the Sunday Times, and I'll be writing about it again this weekend because of COP27. But I was making the point you were making about the big population increase. And we have one of the fastest growing populations in Europe. Um, place like Germany is a pretty stagnant population, so it's easier for them to cut emissions um, uh, overall because of their stable population. Much harder for us to do it because we're a fast-growing population. But the other thing is um, um, when Saudi Arabia exports oil, um, the emissions created by the oil are counted against the country burning the oil. But when we export beef and we export 90% of our beef, all the carbon emissions are counted against us, even if it's Germans eating our beef. So they're the consumers of our beef, like we're the consumers of Saudi oil, let's say. Um, but all the emissions are, are debited to us. And Ireland doesn't say, well, hang on a minute, this isn't very fair. And actually, we produce beef very efficiently. Other countries don't produce beef efficiently. And uh, if you don't allow us to uh, grow beef, somebody else is going to step in like Brazil. They're going to cut down more of the Amazon rainforest, and then they have to export it um, uh, uh, you know, further afield, which creates more emissions. And they're probably going to be growing the beef in a less carbon-efficient way than the Irish farmers. We don't seem to argue our case in Brussels. Um, and actually, you know, the net result of all this will probably be Ireland grows less beef, Brazil, Australia, or New Zealand fill the gap, and carbon emissions go up overall. But we feel good about ourselves, except the farmers don't. Well, you would say that because you're a straight white man. I was listening to, <laughs> no, I was listening to Eamon Ryan in the Dáil today. Today, today, B, we're recording this, by the way, folks, on Thursday evening, as we usually do. But I was listening to, uh, to, the, to, to Eamon Ryan in the Dáil today. And he made the point that, as usual, women and LGBTQ plus people are hardest hit. He said, they, he said, he said we need to recognize... By climate change. Yeah, he said we need mm. to recognize that women, girls, LGBTQ people plus people and other marginalized groups are disproportionately affected by the climate crisis and more vulnerable to the shocks and stresses associated with current and future climate change. Now, that's a new one on me. Mm. I mean, I, I look, you know, I, I, I recognize that there are there are many countries in the world that aren't great countries to be gay in, and that this country wasn't always a great country to be gay in. Let's not pretend to the contrary. But, I mean, you're not affected by climate change more than a straight person. 
you're just not. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm married to a woman. I think women are great. They are not affected more than the rest of us. And the, 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 the degree to which this kind of nonsense seeps into the discourse where, where everything now is women and minorities hardest hit. I mean, get, get, I, I find it difficult to credit that this guy is in charge of running the country. If he genuinely believes that kind of, uh, you know, this isn't a radio program, and also did broadcast rules, that kind of crap. Yeah, you'd like to see him producing hard evidence to back it up. Maybe he has it, and fine, but let's see it. And let's ask him, and let journalists ask him, or let opposition members ask him, can we see the evidence for that, please, Minister? But that won't happen. Maybe, maybe Karen Nolan or Padre Tobin or Matty might ask him, but that's about it. All these people, you know, have to be independent, literally, I mean, not you know, independent EDs who are properly ideologically independent as well. Looks like, you know, we rely on these independent EDs to be properly independent because all the rest of them are whipped A, by the media and B, by their own parties. We should probably talk about Elon for a little bit and Mastodon and Twitter. Are you on Mastodon yet, David? I haven't migrated. Um, I mean, the whole thing, so... Can I just say, I, th- I think you should migrate. I think it'd be very funny. I'd be there watching. <laughs> see how long you lasted uh, we oh, should explain yes. to you, you might explain to people what Mastodon is in case they don't know um, well of course the background to this is Elon Musk buys out uh, Twitter and so does the usual meltdown and it's the end of the world um, and so various people then announce I'm going, I'm going to get off Twitter because uh, it's going to become a hellscape um, and I'm going to go to this thing called Mastodon which they probably didn't hear of till yesterday I didn't hear about it until like a few days ago and suddenly they're all talking about it and how we're going to migrate there um, and then I began to read a little bit about this platform. And so Twitter is about 250 million users. Um, Mastodon, before this great migration began, had something like 400,000 worldwide, and now it's up to about 600,000 worldwide. I mean, I have about 21,000 Twitter followers. It means I've got 3% as many followers as everybody globally on Mastodon, and you have a little bit more than that. So the idea that it's going to replace Twitter is absolutely Absurd. So completely overhyped um, uh, to an extent that really amounts to fake news. Uh, and I do know so- one solitary person who's on Mastodon, and he said it's not a bit like Twitter in the way it operates. It's actually quite a complicated site. And then I heard somebody on News Talk talking about this, and she admitted, yes, it's, it's actually quite hard to use. And guess what? It's not moderated, which is the big reason that these people are giving for, uh, for leaving Twitter. It won't be properly moderated and hateful content will turn up even more. And it's less moderated on Mastodon. So kind of defeats the purpose. And by the way, you, you and I well know, uh, John, that Twitter is not a place of amity and peace because the common abuse that's there, particularly for the likes of you and me, uh, the defamations, the occasional physical threats. So the idea... That is a place of peace and goodwill and be kind. What a lot of rubbish. Well, I want to talk about abuse for a minute before I, I give my thoughts on Mastodon, but but just on the abuse, I mean, I think it's important to say something here, which is you get more of it than I do. Uh, even though we agree on maybe 90% of the issues, and I probably am a lot of the time a little bit less guarded in what I say than than, than you are. Be guarded is the wrong word, but I'm more... Less restrained I'm, slightly. I'm, yeah, I'm more willing to call things bullshit um, mm. than, than you are. Uh, but you get more abuse. And, and can I just say, What's the difference between you and me? The difference is that while we agree on things a lot, you are um, have always been associated in the public mind, and I think sometimes unfairly in the public mind, with the Catholic Church. And therefore, mm. you get more abuse. 
They say things about you that they would never say about me. I get the usual nonsense. I get the, I get the, you support Donald Trump, even though I don't. I, I get, I get all that rubbish. You get actual hateful abuse, and I've seen it, and I see it every day, and it is rotten. And mm. I, and I know, I know, I know, uh, you wouldn't want to complain about it, and I'm not really even complaining about it on your behalf. I, what I'm, I'm saying is that in this country, some kinds of abuse are tolerated. I mean, if, 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 um, because you deserve it. If, I if, deserve if, it. If, if that's, Sheikh, that's if what Sheikh, I'm told. It, well, look, if Sheikh Umar al-Qadri, who, who I have a great time for, he's the head of the, um, he's a very prominent Muslim cleric in Ireland, um, but if he was getting the kind of abuse for his religious views, uh, or views that he is believed to hold, because I don't think the people uh, who abuse you even notice for a second what your views actually are, but they just, they, they, they tweet at you about what they think you believe. But if he was getting that kind of stuff for five minutes, it'd be from, it, there would be programs on the national radio about the uh, horrendous fall of this country into bigotry and xenophobia and all the rest of it. You can get it and not, not an eyelid is battered because, as you say, it is perceived that you deserve it. And these are the same people who will whine, whine mercilessly about, um, in some cases, somebody saying, expressing the view entirely neutrally that a biological man cannot become a woman. That is unacceptable. But calling you names from morning to night is, uh, is, is well, well, you know, it's well earned. So I spare me these people talking about abuse. Well, I know. I mean, I, I mean, I think you're right in terms of why I attract more than you. I'm around longer than you. Um, I am strongly associated with the Catholic Church for understandable reasons. And I've been uh, in more of the kind of social issue debates for longer than you. So you just become a target. And particularly when um, there's not really any bishop you can attack anymore because they almost entirely keep their heads down. So who puts their head up? Uh, well, people like me, people like Ronan Mullen, and a handful of other people. So, okay, you're the target. And uh, you deserve all this hate and abuse. And it's not really hate and abuse because, well, you deserve it. Uh, but I noticed, by the way, um, um, Hazel Chu, um, Green Party member and former Lord Mayor of Dublin, and... Um, one of the Twitter employees who got laid off was explaining on Twitter how he'd been laid off. And Hazel comes along to sympathize and basically says when she was getting abused on Twitter, this person would act effectively, shouldn't use this term, as her guardian angel and clear out the trolls. I know guardian angel on Twitter, I can assure you. <laughs> but what it shows you is uh, the deep connection there is between politicians of the left and these social media companies. And we're supposed to believe that these social media companies are in some way neutral and are not biased. What a load of total rubbish. The best thing that uh, Elon Musk could do with Twitter is to make it, as a corporation, politically neutral and not be trying to tip the scales all the time in favor of the sides they like, because that is just so disgraceful and anti-democratic, ultimately, for them to be doing that, sometimes on the sly. But, but that's unacceptable. I mean, I think it's very important to, to note that, I mean, neutrality is not acceptable. And that is the biggest change in the media environment, certainly, in, uh, I don't want to harp on about the fact you're a little bit older than me, because it's it's not a <laughs> massive gap. But that is the biggest change in my lifetime. It, when, when I was growing up, learning about journalism, I was always taught that neutrality uh, was the goal. That you know, it should be a place where you know we don't always achieve it, but we should aim to be fair to all perspectives and facilitate debate. That has is 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 no longer acceptable. Neutrality is fascist. And Impartiality. I, 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 yeah, I'm not exaggerating when I say neutrality is fascist. I popped over to Mastodon this week to take a look at it. I didn't sign up, didn't join the account. Mm. You can browse what's being said on and how, how the how the whole system interacts. And I mean, basically, um, 
you know, journalists are now being told to put content warnings on all of their content because some people might be offended by it. So you, you don't know what your news story might be about. It could trigger somebody. So you have to put your content behind a content warning. All, I mean, you said it wasn't moderated, which is true. It's not professionally moderated, but the, the Irish server has its own team now of moderators who will who will who have the power to ban people and shut them up. Well, you can only imagine how that will work. Well, all transphobia is banned. All so-called, all, so-called. So, so well, you know, I'm using their definition uh, mm. of is, is is banned. Um, it's one of a list of about 40 things that are banned. It is the kind of place where, as I said in a tweet, that was quite popular this week. You can go on. You're there to, to you're there to smile um, through gritted teeth and laugh at the right kind of jokes and vote in polls about whether Barry's tea or Tato's is more gas mm. and Irish. And if you say the wrong thing and set them off, you're out of there. It is an asylum. And and there is no other word for it. It is an asylum of, of, of for, for kind of triggered people who view the very idea of open debate as offensive because the world is a settled place around their views and the media itself must conform to it. And by the way, if you're a journalist, I know because I, know, I was talking to a journalist last week who, who, who listens to this. I know there are journalists who listen to this and I know because you talk to me all the time. Uh, you talk to me in DMs on Twitter. You talk to me at, at events. You tell me we are terrified. And... You're terrified of, of, of getting abuse. You're terrified of you know being you know you're terrified of saying the wrong thing and being denounced by a mob as These a These journalists who speak to you, yeah, yes, yeah, privately, yeah, yeah. Pri- privately. Uh, you're terrified of being called a transphobe or a bigot or mm, anything, or whatever. A- a- anything. Uh, terrified of saying the wrong thing. Terrified in some cases, David, of retweeting the wrong material, the wrong article, <laughs> of, of 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 a perspective that oh, why are you sharing that content? And um, because they know the mob may come for them and i mean that is that is uh, you know there is no more terrified group of people in this country these days than than journalists nobody is more careful about what they say than journalists because they are terrified of being the main character on social media for a day uh, and i mean that's just the the way that's just the country we live in yeah i mean we should probably close in a second um but uh it's possible that um kind of liberal establishment, to use that term, might be able to destroy Twitter effectively by um, saying to the likes of General Motors, which causes no reason to like Musk because he runs a rival company in Tesla, uh, that they won't advertise it on, on it anymore, so it becomes financially unviable. So maybe they'll be able to crush it. But I don't see um, people who have spent years and years and years building up substantial followings on Twitter abandoning it just like that uh, to go over to a a um, so kind of website that almost nobody's heard of it there's hardly anybody on it I just don't see it happen uh, happening it'll be like all the people who said if Donald Trump gets elected I'm leaving America I'm taking a view Alec Baldwin they didn't leave did they and I think it'll be the same with Twitter unless they make the advertisers destroy it well I, I don't think the goal is to destroy Twitter I think the goal is to force Elon Musk to sell Twitter at preferably a humiliating loss mm. to teach to teach uh, everyone else who are encouraged les out that um you know that that don't mess with us mm. i think the ideal goal would be ironically for it to be bought by another billionaire i mean I'd, I'd ask yourself this question if uh, if um what's his name who runs amazon jeff bezos mm. bought the washington post by the way billionaires mm. or in the media had bought twitter instead of elon musk would all this freak out be happening no it wouldn't they don't care. That they don't care that Elon Musk is a billionaire. They don't care about corporate control of the media. They care that Elon Musk has the wrong views and that he might allow people with the wrong views to have the same kind of airtime that they do. That is what the freakout is about, if they are honest. 
but they are not honest, so we have to listen to all this bullshit. Anyway, as you said, we're running out of time. So um, that was my perhaps very strong opinion to end the show. Um, as I said, as I said last week, um, David and I are so grateful for the support we've had uh, on this podcast so far, and we're we're, we're delighted that you're listening. Um, as ever, there's no point having this conversation if you find it value and you finding it valuable without sharing it around to people. So we're always appreciative of retweet shares, quiet recommendations in WhatsApp groups, whispering it to your granny over the Christmas <laughs> dinner table. You know, you might like McGurk and Quinn. Anything like that is is vastly helpful. Um, as I said last week, we will have guests soon. We were going to have one this week, but then we thought the the midterms was a was a topic that was was worth discussion discussing in depth. So. Um, I guess that's the last word from me. Um, And uh, as ever, we will be back next week for the week that really was.